1045 The Zone's non-stop sports talk continues with a look at Nashville's teams and at news around the nation from the lead writer of 1045thezone.com. This is The Big Six. The Big Six with Jason Martin. Presented by Renters Warehouse. And here we go. Straight up, 6 o'clock by my watch means it's time for the one and only Big Six here on 104.5 The Zone. I'm glad to have you with us. Blessed to have you as a part of my audience. My name is Jason Martin. I'm on Twitter at jmartzone. You can certainly find me there. Comment to me there. I'm here from the bunker in Brentwood, Tennessee, my home, doing the program as we all navigate this challenge together, which hopefully we're coming to an end. I'll say this without getting too deep into the weeds on it. We need to get the country reopened, and the more evidence that comes out, the more evidence there is that we need to do it sooner rather than later, because some things are coming crumbling down right now, folks. I don't mean our economy and stuff, but, I mean, there's that too. But I'm talking about projections and models and worldviews. Some stuff is coming down right now. But this morning we got some real news. We got the best interviewer on planet Earth in that he can get things out of people that no one else can. And if you want to model yourself after someone that does interviews with famous people, and look, I certainly have my problems with his content, but Howard Stern's about as real as it gets. And even though I'm not a big fan of the zoo crew and the prank calls and all of that stuff, uh, his interviews are often can't miss. And he had two hours or so with Tom Brady this morning. And this is what everyone is talking about, and they should. And let me get to my first conclusion about what I heard and some of the quotes and everything else. Tom Brady's a smart guy, smarter than we thought, and someone that understands balance in his life. Remember I told you we could rename this show In the Middle with J-Mart because I feel like the extremes are wrong, the positives and negatives, the skeptics and the true believers on most issues are wrong that the truth is somewhere in the middle. And that's why compromise usually works because you can see it from both perspectives there. Tom Brady even talked about balance in his life. But he talked about the football side. And one of the big points was, he says, I don't think there was a final, final decision until it happened. But I would say I probably knew before the start of last season that it was my last year. And I knew that it was just our time was coming to an end. What that tells me is, remember there was all that talk about how the Patriots never had a chance to, or they they hadn't sat down and they hadn't had their meeting with Tom Brady after the season. And some people thought that was a bad sign, but that they were going to have their opportunity to sell him. And that led me to think, okay, well, once they have their chance, you know, he'll probably, cooler heads will prevail here and they'll end up finding a way to stay together because they're better together than they are apart. What turns out to be the case, based on that quote, is that Tom Brady, his meeting, quote-unquote, with the Patriots, was the season. They had the entire year to sell him on staying because he was halfway out the door before the season began. If they had found success again, maybe he would have left again. He says later on, obviously, that he he doesn't care about legacy. It wasn't about legacy for him. It was about still proving he could play at a high level. He's still driven to succeed, 
but that's more a personal thing than it is a number of championships thing. Quote, I never cared about legacy. I never once when I was in high school said, man, I can't wait for what my football legacy looks like. He said it was just time to go. He had done everything. Quote, I accomplished everything I could in two decades with an incredible organization, incredible group of people, and that will never change. Again, he speaks like a regular person. You know, you always would feel like maybe he was, you know, on some other planet because he had this giant mansion with a moat and he's married to one of those well-known supermodels of the century and Giselle Bunchen, and it just seemed like it was unassailable and unapproachable was Tom Brady's life. Like, we couldn't even guess. He probably had caviar at all times, you know, that kind of thing. Well, what you find out, and this was the same thing that I said a few weeks ago when he left and the Wickersham article came out. I said, what you find out about Tom Brady is he's just like us, and we're all the same. We all want to be wanted. We all want to be needed. We're all driven by unique things, but a lot of them are personal in nature, pride-based in nature. We're all, to some degree, inspired by the right things and broken by the wrong things, all of us. One of the most important things that I got from this had nothing to do with football, and it was about Tom and Giselle going to marriage counseling. And he says to Howard Stern, she didn't feel like I was doing my part for our family. She felt like I would play football all season, and she would take care of the house, and all of a sudden when the season would end, I would be like, great, let me get into all my other business activities. Let me get into my football training. And she's sitting there going, well, when are you going to do things for the house? When are you going to take the kids to school and do that? And that was a big part of our marriage. I had to like check myself because she's like, I have goals and dreams too. So I'm reading a couple of books right now. Um, one of them is a marriage devotional I'm doing with my wife as we're approaching seven months together as husband and wife. And then I'm reading a book on work. And I usually wait till the end of the show, but we're, we're, I'm going to give you a recommendation at the end of the show. It's going to be different because it's going to be talking about someone we lost uh, last night to COVID-19 and what he means and, and what I think you should check out of his. But if you want me to give you something else, and I'll just say, if you're, if you're a believer, definitely read this. Um, it is from a pastor. It's from a minister, Tim Keller from Redeemer in New York. But it's about work, and it's called Every Good Endeavor, and I think it's a tremendous book. Um, but one of the things that it kind of stresses is that at any given point in a marriage or any relationship, a friendship, a work relationship, everything else, there's a constant question between all parties involved as to whose pleasure trumps the rest. And there's different ways to react to that. There are different ways to respond to that. And one of them is to serve the other one out of joy, to serve everybody else, or in this case, for me, giving in to making sure my wife is happy before I'm happy. The second one is, yes, giving in to her, but doing so resentfully, like doing so begrudgingly, like you're holding it against her and you want her to know that you are making sure that her pleasure is above yours. And the third one is being selfish and always getting your way, fighting for it at all costs. 
And the argument made, and this has nothing to do at all spiritually. I mean, it does, but it applies no matter what, is if the parties involved aren't both looking towards that first answer, which is serving the other joyfully, and that being its own reward, if they're not both doing that, there are going to be troubles. So Brady goes on, and I think it's interesting that I'm in the midst of this book, and then he says this today. He says, Giselle's point was, quote, well, yeah, of course this works for you. It all works for you, but it doesn't work for me because you get caught up in your life where you think a relationship's great because it only works for you. And the point of a relationship, it has to work for both. You better work on both because if you don't, then ultimately it's not sustainable. That's what he says about that. And he says, look, we had to go to marriage counseling. And I had to realize, as basically what he's saying when he says, that if it only works for you, if it doesn't work for both, it's not sustainable, is there must be balance. Again, the truth must be in the middle. You can't always give up everything because there's no way not to be resentful if you're not giving up your way of life 24-7, 365. And I think the key to looking towards the other's happiness first is that if both parties are doing that, then you're both going to get some degree of your own pleasure but coming from the other person. So there's more of a give there than there is a take. You are giving of yourself, and then you will accept what they give you in return. And if you think about that idea, that concept, and then apply it to Brady's time with the Patriots, it feels to me that Brady believed that there was no balance here and that the organization was always getting the pleasure and he was having to sacrifice. He may be wrong. He may be skewed. He may be selfish. There is still that talk about how Jimmy G and it looked like Belichick was ready to cut bait with Tom and go with Jimmy G, that he saw everybody as a number and was even more difficult to deal with with Brady, um, trying to kind of break him down and bring his ego down than he was with anybody else. But there's no balance in that. I think the more that you hear, the more obvious it becomes that Tom Brady had grown weary and frustrated and done with this relative to Belichick. That Belichick and the way in which he asserted control in the organization and the way in which he treated Tom Brady, which I would say probably at least from Brady's perspective came across as wanting to make sure who was in charge, that that became untenable, or as he said about his own marriage, unsustainable. He had to realize, did Tom, that Giselle needed to have time herself, that Tom needed to take the kids to school, that he needed to do chores around the house and not just watch her do them, that there needed to be some kind of equality there. Now think about the Patriots organization and Brady leaving and saying it was time he had done all of this. He says later on in the conversation that he knows that he would not have been anywhere near as successful without Bill Belichick. But he also says Belichick would not have been as successful without him. He believes that as well. And he's right. There's no question both of those two statements are right. These two brought out the best in each other. But there does come a point where the best can also be accompanied by the worst. And maybe the, the pendulum has swung from a real extreme here to even even more extreme on the negative side. Any good thing can become a bad thing when it becomes an ultimate thing. And so 
I look at all of this, and he says a lot of other stuff that's really interesting. He talks about his relationship with Trump, but says, look, there's no advantage to me getting involved politically here. He was just a friend. Now, some people are never going to accept that, but it is. He talks about health. He talks about concussions and whether or not he would let his kids play football. He talked about, and I think this is also important, he was asked whether or not there was a self-consciousness of race and guilt for being a white quarterback with a lot of African-American teammates. And he said never. And he said sports transcends race. It transcends wealth. It transcends all that. You get to know and appreciate what someone else may bring. And I think it's that last statement that really spoke to me because, again, this Keller book that I'm reading called Every Good Endeavor talks about how a lot of people feel like their work is more important than others, and it's not. And it doesn't matter what you believe in or what you don't believe in. You can still be gifted with an ability that someone else can't. I might feel like I have some kind of superiority to you, but you might be a better writer than me or a better talker than me or better at something else than me, whatever it might be. But I can look upon what you're doing and see the inherent value in that without seeing any other characteristics about you. It doesn't mean they don't exist. doesn't mean that we don't see the differences in one another. But it means that if you look in the middle, you see the greatness of someone else, whether your neighbor or your colleague or your spouse or your child or whatever else. We don't have to be selfish about it. We also don't have to be so resentful of it. Again, if you can serve the other or if you can give of yourself to the other out of joy, then you can rejoice in their successes as well without being so bitter that you didn't have them yourself. And I think it's interesting because, look, race is always going to be an issue in everything. Wealth is going to be an issue in things. But sports is a meritocracy. Antonio Brown is not on a roster right now, not because he's not greatly talented, but because even as great as he is, there's a risk factor there. The merits of his skills make you want him, but everything else tells you it's a bad idea. Whereas there could be a lot of really bad guys that do have jobs still because of how talented they are. If you're good enough, you're probably going to find a home to some degree. So a lot of the things that Tom Brady was saying here, I just found very intriguing. We're going to go ahead and get to break here and probably have a pretty, I want to talk a little bit more about this in the next segment. Um, but this interview, you can probably find it on YouTube now, is worth checking out. Um, this is the most you'll ever hear from Tom Brady, I think. And of course, it was Howard Stern that got it out of him. You'd say that's unlikely, but only if you've never listened to Howard Stern's interviews before, because again, nobody interviews human beings the way he does. He's the best I've ever seen, and that includes the Mike Wallaces of the world. Howard Stern's the best, because he just brings them down from whatever pedestal they're on and brings them right down to a spot where they are vulnerable enough but feel safe enough to actually talk. We'll be right back. It's Big Six on 104.5 The Zone. Zone. It's Big Six. We're presented by Renner's Warehouse. We appreciate them, as always, being a part of the program. I'm Jason Martin. I'm on Twitter at jmartzone. Renner's Warehouse, they are dedicated to making renting your home easy, fast, and worry-free. 
you can't buy happiness, but you can rent it. So I may talk about Tom Brady a little bit more tomorrow, but this can be a little bit of an abbreviated segment. I'm kind of changing the the lengths because the last segment's going to be a lot longer than usual because I just have something I really want to impart to you at the end of the show uh, about a giant that we lost, unfortunately, due to COVID-19 complications last night. But the Falcons have new uniforms. And just for a couple of minutes, I want to talk about this. The uniforms don't look bad. They really don't. And the ATL is more what Atlanta's, you know, that's what you hear now. It's the ATL. You don't hear Atlanta as often as maybe you once did. And, again, they, they look pretty good. The question is, did they need to be changed? Now, we can go back and talk about the Rams and how bad that decision was. Not even thinking about the Chargers in this case, but just how bad and bland and everything that Rams change was. And the digits that the Tampa Bay Bucks got a couple of years ago. Why is it that we are so just ready for something new when the old has not outlived its usefulness? I'm a Broncos fan. I miss our old powder blue helmets with the Bronco on them and the D, the orange, all of that stuff. I miss them badly. The new Titans uniforms, I think, look really good. I'm a fan of them. I'm not upset with that change. And some changes are for the better. Remember when the Clippers changed a few years ago, how bad those things started to look? For every good change, there are probably two bad changes. And uniforms seem to be a prime example of this. Now, yeah, from a capitalist perspective, if you get new uniforms, everybody has to buy them or they're wearing outdated throwbacks. And throwbacks, I don't know if maybe they have the same allure that they did 10 years ago. Maybe they do. I don't know. I haven't worn a jersey in a while. But... We are constantly ready to change or try the new flavor when we love the original. I I do this all the time. I've gotten caught up in this many times where I'll see a new flavor of some product that I like. I'll go get the new flavor, and even if it's okay, it doesn't usually blow me away the way that I once thought that it would. It's just like, oh, man, they now have this flavor of chip? Okay, well, I mean, I've been eating these my entire life, and I really like them, but I've got to try this. And then you get them home, and like a quarter of the way through that bag, you realize, I probably should have just gotten the originals. I miss those. I mean, there's 17 different flavors of M&Ms, and again, maybe that's a good change for you. But these uniform changes are so unnecessary. There is, remember we talked about, and I've said this repeatedly over the past couple of days, that sports are... You know, just part of the fabric of culture and Americana and our collective psyche. Drew Brees said we really need professional sports right now. I agree with that sentiment. I do. Because even though it's an escape, it feels like almost a necessary escape and one that's been taken from us that also contributed to community and to gathering and to getting to know your neighbor and a collective cheer and things of that nature. So there are things that are that are out there in terms of us needing sports back. But when you think about uniform changes and all of this, tradition is one of the things that makes sports so special. And tradition is found in the duds that our favorite athletes wear and the looks that they have. And when you change it, I think you lose, oftentimes you lose some things. Now there are classic uniforms that you hope you never see change. Like, Penn State or Alabama's college football uniforms, those big giant Nike numbers that are stitched on in real basic colors. USC is another great example of this. 
And then there are some like all the ones Adidas makes where the numbers are stretched out wrong and it just it just doesn't look good to me. And then you have some classic uniforms in every sport and some of the most beautiful uniforms are you know the the classic hockey sweaters. And certainly the NFL has its share with the classic Cowboys or the classic Green Bay Packers look or the older classic Rams look that's now been changed multiple times. Some of these franchises make shifts and maybe it is just for a cash infusion but they lose some semblance of like the memories you have of your favorite franchise aren't coming from new uniforms you're going to remember what they used to wear not what they're wearing now i know there's controversy over the smoky grays with tennessee i actually like those i like them i like an alternate uniform i don't mind an alternate uniform but i think that we are way too quick to change a logo or change a uniform and it's not being called upon like why are we trying to break this when it or why are we trying to fix this when it's not broken nobody is calling i don't think anybody was saying that the falcons uniforms needed to change i thought the ones they had were just fine and the ones they had before them were fine as well these are okay matter of fact these are pretty good but is anybody out there clamoring that this was necessary the fact that it happened was so that you can sell a bunch more jerseys, really. I mean, the new look isn't going to change anything. It's not going to change your television coverage. It's not going to change anything else. I think they're bold, and they are among the best of the changes that we've seen, but they're unnecessary. And then you have things like the Jets, where you're just like, what is this arena football league team that used to play in the NFL? I don't get any of this, folks. I just feel like maybe I'm becoming more traditional as I'm getting older, but... Is it okay for us to just leave some things the way that they are as opposed to always trying to change them? This is an unnecessary shift, and it happens more and more. And it just feels like greed has to be the case behind it. Like, there's no other reason for this to happen. All I'm going to say is, I love some Cool Ranch Doritos. That was a good change. But I don't think we needed 17 flavors after that. And still, if you just ask me, even though I don't really eat chips all that much anymore... Uh, just give me the nacho cheese. We'll be right back. Big Six, 104.5 The Zone. So. Welcome back to the Big Six here on 104.5 The Zone. I'm Jason Martin. I'm on Twitter at jmartzone. You can find me there, live from the Brentwood Bunker, my home, as we continue to navigate this unprecedented spot in global history and certainly American history together. I hope you're well. I hope you're safe. So remember I told you this was the season of lies when Matt Rule said Cam Newton was, you know, he was looking forward to working with Cam. Now, of course, Matt Rule is saying Teddy's a better fit for us at quarterback after Cam's been released because now he can actually talk. And Trubisky's definitely going to be the starter, and now there's an open competition. I mean, this is – it's misdirection, and it's certain things you can't say until other things have actually happened yet. Like, there's a lot of things that you can't say until there are new realities there. Like, you can't bury Cam Newton while he's still employed for you. But we are also seeing seasonal lies as it relates to, let's figure out where we can create debate when it really doesn't exist. And I think a prime example of this actually happened on ESPN, and I, I saw the video on the website yesterday of Mel Kuyper Jr. and Todd McShay arguing over quarterback placement in the upcoming NFL draft, which is later on in April, as you know. 
there's no question about the top with Joe Burrow and what's expected for Cincinnati to do. But I didn't know that there was a question in the second spot either. And now you're starting to see that pop up a little bit here and there. And I think this is total hogwash, folks. I don't buy this for half a second, much less a complete second. And I think somebody forgot to give one of these two guys the memo on this about what they actually wanted from it because Mel Kuyper starts talking and he says, oh, it's definitely Tua. He goes, no, I know Todd McShay is going to try and push Justin Herbert to you, but I don't think it's close. And then Todd McShay is sitting on the split screen on the other side and he's just like, I don't know where you got that from. I don't know who in their right mind would suggest that barring anything outside of health, it would be anybody over to a Tongo Vailoa at this point. He was just like, I, I don't know what you're even talking about. And as I was hearing this, I'm like, did ESPN tell Mel Kuyper and forget to send an email to Todd McShay and tell him to take the contrarian position so that then they could debate this on every other one of their properties for the next 48 hours? Because Justin Herbert is so a year ago draft. The biggest mistake Justin Herbert made in his life was going back to Oregon, where he didn't win a national championship, where he didn't even make it into the college football playoff thanks to the loss at Arizona State, and where there was more tape on him, which gave more people a chance to find flaws in his game that could then drop him in the draft. Now, he's apparently had good workouts and all this, and he's wowed some people, and I certainly think he could be a starter in the NFL, but... What was it that you were hearing towards the end of the season? Well, Justin Herbert is a one-read quarterback. He's not somebody that reads progressions very well. Uh, he makes some bad decisions from time to time, some baffling throws. He might be a high turnover kind of player. Justin Herbert was a guy that would have gone probably very early in the first round if he had gone out last year, maybe in the Daniel Jones position. And now he is a borderline first-round, second-round guy, according to some of the mocks. And that those that might be low round low end projections. I think he's probably going middle of the first round, somewhere in that neighborhood. I don't know, maybe even earlier than that. Maybe he has improved his stock. But Tua hasn't dropped his unless you just think that he's so fragile he can't play. And you know where I am on this. I fear that that's going to be the case, that his body's going to betray him, and we're looking at Marcus Mariota 2.0 and Tua Tonga-Vailoa, and I'm certainly hoping that I am dead wrong about that and can ask for an apology or basically ask if you'll accept my apology um, five years from now after two has won an MVP or won a Super Bowl or just become the new Russell Wilson or, or whatever. But outside of health, does anybody, is anybody arguing for Justin Herbert over Tua Tonga-Vailoa except maybe John Elway because of Justin Herbert's size? This right here was a just an example of I don't know where Mel Kuyper got his information to do this. And you actually saw as Todd McShay tried to fire back, Mel Kuyper started to shake his head the way that he does sometimes when he's making points. But I think he it looked like the robot was about to spontaneously combust here. You should go try to find this video because it's so weird. McShay's just kind of like, what, what are you talking about? Why would you think that I thought Justin Herbert should go before? He said, not Justin Herbert. If anybody, I think that Jordan Love should go over Justin Herbert. But neither one of them should go over to a Tonga Vailoa because Jordan Love could be a project that we don't see any kind of real tangible benefits from for more than two years because it depends on where he goes as to whether or not he can get on the field in short order. But this kind of thing, 
is part and parcel to me with the season of lies. And it does get into the media. And it does get into NFL front offices and what they're telling the media. We are hearing a whole lot of stuff right now that's just flat out untrue. I don't know who is creating this misdirection or this misinformation on this particular story. But when exactly were we discussing Justin Herbert going over to Otongo Vailoa at any point this year or even much of last year? When was that a discussion point? When was that something that we were talking about on 104.5 The Zone or you were hearing on any major sports network or any national show or local show or reading any pieces about it? I don't even think people at the University of Oregon were mobbing for Justin Herbert to go over to Otongo Vailoa. So why all of a sudden has that story over the past few days, I've seen it hit in a couple of different places. Like it's not widespread, but there's enough of it trickling in that it's making me question not the opinion itself, but the validity that the opinion is actually believed. This reads to me as, I'll go ahead and use the term, fake news. And I don't think it's coming from Herbert's camp or his agents or anything else. Nobody's rooting against Justin Herbert or Tua Tonga Vailoa or Jordan Love, at least I hope not, or certainly Joe Burrow. But this is just nonsense. And McShay, his reaction to this, it's, it feels like this was a contrived debate where they sent an unrevised script to Todd McShay and Mel Kuyper was told to take one position, but Todd McShay had the same position. And then you start to think about, you know, first take and how producers, former producers of that show have come out and said, look, we would have meetings and we would say, you're going to take this side. I'm going to take this side. We need to get 22 minutes out of this. And you hear that on talk radio a lot as well. You hear that on sports talk and shows with multiple hosts. It doesn't happen here, but there are shows around the country that routinely take opposing positions and have contrarians that take positions they don't even believe in because they're trying to create some kind of debate that otherwise wouldn't exist. I know that a lot of agreement can become boring, but I would sure rather be authentic than the opposite. And this was, and I'm not even saying that's exactly what this was in this case, but where would Mel Kuyper think that Todd McShay was going to pick Justin Herbert over Tua Tonga Vailoa? The only reason you would is because you think Tua is going to be hurt all the time. I fear that, which is why I said it's risky to take a pick on him too early, but I guess that's the case anywhere. Anybody could get hurt. Tua said he's not worried about his own injury history because he knows it's always something that could happen out there. And he's absolutely right. And at his age, he shouldn't be telling people that he thinks he's you know gonna break like mr glass every time he's hit i fear for his health if he goes the wrong situation in particular and deals with the kind of thing deshaun watson did in terms of the number of sacks that he sustained over a two-year period in the nfl but nobody is arguing justin herbert is the better player over to a tongo vailoa both of them could end up hall of famers i guess or neither one of them could both of them could end up busts but that's a fallacious argument, and I don't know why Mel Kuyper would think somebody, his colleague Todd McShay or somebody that smart, would have thought the same thing, except for the fact that they were supposed to feel differently so that you could get a debate on TV. I don't know. It felt weird to me. Go watch the video. I'm not a conspiracy guy, so I'm not saying that's what happened. I'm just saying this felt like one guy had a script and the other one didn't get the same script. We'll be right back. I have a very lengthy final segment. I want to spend some time talking about 
a legend that we lost yesterday and giving you uh, a little bit of background on his life. So we'll do that next. This is the Big Six on 104.5 The Zone. Final segment of the program tonight here on the Big Six, 104.5 The Zone. I'm Jason Martin. I'm on Twitter at jmartzone. You can find me there. Uh, dispensing with something TV or film related here to close up shop on this Wednesday evening in the Music City. I tweeted about this last night, so it shouldn't come as any gigantic surprise to you that I want to go here. But it's still a recommendation from the bunker, but it's music. And there are people whose words you listen to and you just realize, boy, what a gift. What an amazing talent. What an amazing skill set. Even if it's somebody you never met, it just feels like some people understand the world or view it in a way where there's a beauty to it and a pain. There's a sense of realism. I can tell you that I'm pretty sure John Prine and I would not see eye to eye on many things, probably political issues, and even some of his lyrics I probably wouldn't agree with. But he was a storyteller who influenced a lot of other storytellers. And, uh, you know, I actually kind of talked about last week when Adam Schlesinger passed away that, you know, John Prine, we almost lost John Prine, but his wife had said he'd gone stable. And then last night he did pass away due to COVID-19 complications at age 73. He was someone who had dealt with cancer earlier in his life and was certainly in the risk category at his age and just, you know, he had lived a life. He had lived a hard life as well. But he influenced so many people, not just the stuff that he did from his own music, but helping to write stuff for Johnny Cash, for George Strait, for Bette Midler even. He inspired people right now that I think are among the best in all of music. Jason Isbell and Margot Price and folks like that. Amanda Shires, a lot of these names that have really emerged, John Prine was part of their story and was with them in some form or fashion. You know, I, I saw John Prine live at the Ryman in 2018, and I had already seen him on stage with Jason Isbell a few months prior to that as a surprise. And the night that I saw John Prine, he had first the Secret Sisters, then Todd Snyder, who's another one that's heavily influenced by John Prine, another incredibly talented guy who I would disagree with even more than I do John Prine, most likely. And then Sturgill Simpson came out and did a lot with John Prine at the end of that show. John Prine was somebody who, look, the music was pretty simple more often than not, but listening to him was the point. If you saw what Bruce Springsteen mentioned last night on Twitter about John Prine, about how he missed him and how that how he and John were both new Dylans is what he called them. And this is something I think I've talked about before, that there were three or four musicians that got into it and basically tried to copy Bob Dylan because they were so inspired and so driven by him. Bruce Springsteen was one. Tom Petty was one. Here you're hearing Springsteen say that John Prine was one, 
And it was more about, especially in the case of Prine, I mean, Dylan's music was iconic and he did his harmonica stuff and all, but I mean, this wasn't the most complicated stuff. Like the tablature was not that deep, but it didn't matter because this was about the substance more so than anything else. And, you know, this is a guy in John Prine that has won a Grammy. He's in the Songwriters Hall of Fame. He's written some iconic stuff, but he's also written a lot of stuff that you haven't heard before. And The Tree of Forgiveness was an album that came out in 2018, and that's the tour that I saw him on, and it turned out to be you know, the last album that he put out. It was 10 songs. It was barely even 35 minutes long. It may not have even actually been 35 minutes long now that I think about it. And it was everything. It had elements of Cash. It had elements of Jimmy Buffett. It had elements of Bob Dylan. It had elements of Bruce Springsteen. It had elements of Jason Isbell. It had elements of inspirations to the music and for the music and from the music. But John Prime was a genius. I remember around the turn of the century, I had a good friend of mine that uh, ended up writing a couple of novels, writing some fiction, some hard-boiled detective stuff, which I would highly tell you to go check out stuff by Max Everhart, who now lives in South Carolina with his wife and son. He was a roommate of mine. I went to high school with him, went to college with him as well. Just a really bright guy. And he helped formulate a lot of my music taste. And, you know, I was listening to Radiohead and I kind of brought him along on that ride. He brought me along a little bit on the fish ride. And then he brought me along on Ryan Adams and Wilco and John Prine. And his dad listened to John Prine. And at the time, I don't think that I was quite ready for John Prine. So I caught John Prine a lot later than most people did. But if you look at just some of the comments that were made last night, like Isabel saying, for once, I'm really glad that I don't have to be on stage singing tonight. Meaning, you know, as bad as the virus is, it's caused him to cancel his shows. He probably couldn't have done this. I remember seeing Isabel a couple of times on the tour a few years ago, right after Tom Petty passed away, and he was playing a Tom Petty cover every night. Uh, just showing, again, another inspiration, another Americana, another great songwriter as well. But Charlie Pride said last night, I've enjoyed John's music for many years. He was a truly gifted man, and he will be missed. Lee Greenwood, so sad to see another great music legend leave us. My family sends prayers to John Prine's family. It was all over the place. Bonnie Raitt was commenting. Margot Price was heartbroken, and she was talking about it. Big-time names, as I mentioned. Uh, Bruce Springsteen being one of them. Just absolutely incredible there are people that you just feel like were artists that not only lived up to their potential but were gifted that potential to share with the world and i don't know what it is that you do but i hope you take pride in it as good as i could ever be at anything john prime was better at writing songs whether it was for himself or for others and i urge you to find the tree of forgiveness tonight and listen to it start to finish. You can put on, you know, some headphones or you can just listen to it with your family. You'll laugh a little bit. You'll feel sad a little bit. You will feel at home. You'll feel like he's a friend. He's not just somebody performing for you. He's somebody that you could see across the way in the most rural of areas or downtown at a coffee shop just telling stories about being a mailman turned into a musician that was basically discovered in 1970. You could see him sitting on the porch. I was running a couple of days ago 
in my neighborhood and I saw a man that I've never spoken to before and I should have stopped and said something to him, quite frankly. I think our culture is, has taught us not to do that. And I have, it's easier for me not to engage, but I probably should. And he was just sitting on his porch playing guitar. He was probably in his 70s, late 60s, something like that. He was just playing guitar with a smile on his face, had a beverage sitting next to him. And just for a second as I was walking by or running by, I just kind of thought of, you know, what that probably used to be like and how much more often you used to see things like that. My grandparents spent a lot of their days, if they weren't working hard, uh, you know, on their property or elsewhere, canning preserves or whatever in a in a cellar, they were probably sitting on the front porch in a glider or in a chair that's now in my parents' house, just experiencing the world, which sometimes is so loud and cacophonous with voices like mine or political voices or there's always got to be something on. But there is a lot of beauty and a lot of discernment and quiet in solitude where the world can speak to you. And I mean the natural world, not those with opinions. So John Prime passed away at 73. And as, you know, during my honeymoon, uh, I actually sang this one night in the hotel and my wife kind of laughed about it. And I knew the song because it had just spoken to me. And it was just like, this is a really funny, it's got a little bit of humor to it, but it's also just such a great microcosm of someone that knows that their days were coming close to an end. And even though there were ups and downs, there was a lot to be thankful for in that life. And it was the last song, as a matter of fact, on the tree of forgiveness, which is tonight's recommendation from the bunker. And I know this is a longer last segment than you usually hear from me, but I could have talked all show about John Prine and some of his lyrics. I mean, he had a, a way to speak to the human condition to addiction, to depression, to everything. And yeah, he was a protest singer a lot as well. He had some Woody Guthrie in him, as well as just speaking to what he knew. But the final song on the Tree of Forgiveness is called When I Get to Heaven. And I used to sing it and she would laugh. And uh, the hatch print poster for John Prine, as a matter of fact, from that show I saw in 2018, which I have framed, basically is this song. And it just, as soon as I saw this news, as soon as my wife said, oh, we lost John Prine, I was sad. And this song started just ringing in my head. And I saw it pop up on a number of different feeds and things last night because it's so perfect for being kind of the epitaph for John Prine's life. And I'm, I'm going to read the entire thing to you, basically, or at least almost right to the end, because I think it tells you how funny he could be how introspective he could be, and just what a kind-hearted soul John Prine had to have been for those that knew him a lot better than just this sports talk radio host and pop culture critic that felt like he was speaking reality. So here's these lyrics on my way out the door. And just listen to this. When I get to heaven... I'm going to shake God's hand, thank him for more blessings than one man can stand. Then I'm going to get a guitar and start a rock and roll band. Check into a swell hotel, ain't the afterlife grand. And then I'm going to get a cocktail, vodka and ginger ale. Yeah, I'm going to smoke a cigarette that's nine miles long. I'm going to kiss that pretty girl 
on the tilt-a-whirl, because this old man is going to town. Then, as God is my witness, I'm getting back into show business. I'm going to open up a nightclub called the Tree of Forgiveness and forgive everybody ever done me any harm. Well, I might even invite a few choice critics, those parasitics, buy them a pint of something and smother them with my charm. Because then I'm going to get a cocktail, vodka and ginger ale. Yeah, I'm going to smoke a cigarette that's nine miles long. I'm going to kiss that pretty girl on the tilt-a-whirl. Yeah, this old man is going to town. Yeah, when I get to heaven, I'm going to take that wristwatch off my arm. What are you going to do with time after you've bought the farm? And then I'm going to go find my mom and dad and good old brother Doug. Well, I bet him and cousin Jackie are still cutting up a rug. I want to see my mama's sisters because that's where all the love starts. I miss them like crazy. Bless their little hearts because I'm going to have a cocktail, vodka and ginger ale. Yeah, I'm going to smoke a cigarette that's nine miles long. I'm going to kiss that pretty girl on the tilt-a-whirl. Yeah, this old man is going to town. John Prine, not perfect. Jason Martin, not perfect. You, not perfect. None of us perfect. But there is beauty in some amazing places here. And John Prine, I tell you, man, you listen to him, and it's just going to get into your soul a little bit. It's going to make you start remembering your own life and your own experiences and feeling exactly what John Prine is feeling. He is a storyteller where you don't just hear his words and they fly past you. He was a storyteller where the story actually drew you in as if you were around a campfire at camp. Just sitting there listening to someone tell you a ghost story. John Prine told you stories of America. His version of it through his eyes And whether I agreed with all of those visions or not, he was a genius and he'll be missed. So tonight's recommendation in this, probably the longest final segment I've ever done on this show, is John Prine's The Tree of Forgiveness from 2018. Because as good as the early stuff was, the fact that this album was as good as it was in 2018 when he was in his 70s, shows just how special a talent he was because not only did he not lose a step he was he didn't lose a half step he didn't lose a quarter step go listen to the tree of forgiveness tonight and i'll talk to you tomorrow be good to each other clear eyes full hearts can't lose god bless and good night from the music city